You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to this episode of India in Focus. This is Sachit Balsari. Welcome to the COVID Chronicles, where we examine science, policy, and societal responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. For this episode, we are joined by Inakshi Ganguly, human rights activist and co-founder of Huck Center for Child Rights, which she co-directed till 2018. Inakshi is now an honorary professor of the National Law University in Orissa. Welcome, Inakshi. Thank you, Sachin. Inakshi, pleasure to have you on the show. While India is bordering on returning to some new normal, and many are keen to put the pandemic behind, there is global concern that children have been left behind in many parts of the world. In November, the National Human Rights Commission of India released advisories related to the COVID pandemic and its impact on children. You have spent a lifetime advocating for the rights of children. Can you tell us what the National Human Rights Commission found and what we should be on the lookout for in the coming months? In July of this year, the, uh, the National Human Rights Commission set up a committee, 11-member committee, of which I was a member, to develop advisories on a number of issues relating to the human rights violations that are taking place in COVID and how to address them. They included children, women, transgender, health, migrants, so it, and uh, prisoners. So it was a, it was a range. Uh, the ones that they have released relate to food and nutrition, health, and uh, rights of children. Rights of children is the one that I led in terms of the discussions. So the, the idea was to first assess what the situation of children is with respect to what is happening with them in the, in the face of the pandemic and what state governments and, the, and other institutions must do. So uh, what I have tried to do to, to bring to them the advisory was to do a series of uh, discussions with um, multiple stakeholders and bring their uh, recommendations in. The, the, the major findings, as you will have noticed, uh, relate to health, education, provision of midday meals, Anganwari centers, provision of food in the Anganwari centers, immunization, and all the other basic services that children will require and which the NHRC promises to monitor once they have sent the advisories to the state government. That in, is, in a nutshell, what this is about. And actually, I would, I would love to ask you some more questions about, about how the monitoring mechanisms are placed. But can we take a step back and can you help me understand what schooling, uh, what interrupted schooling in India is looking like? Because in, in the United States, as you know, there is much debate about whether schools should reopen um, or, or they shouldn't because um, it's really hard on parents, especially in, in single family, uh, single parent households or where both parents are working for parents to stay at home to chaperone their children through using, you know, web-based interfaces or Zoom uh, to access uh, their schools. Um, I would think in India with sort of, you know, larger family structures, this, um, uh, this may play out differently. What, what, are, the, what are the challenges in, in India? Are there challenges with children staying at home? There are multiple challenges with children staying in school, at home. Uh, 
um, the first challenge is, of course, that, and it, of course, gets again divided by class and access to internet and all of those. But let's start from the very bottom. Um, there, we're talking about millions of children who do not have access to either internet or to a device. Most of them, therefore, cannot, even if there was Zoom classes which are being offered, they cannot access it because they do not have a device. They, they might be one device in the home which is to be shared by everybody in some families. There, I mean, there was, in fact, a report um, of a girl having committed suicide in Kerala because she was feeling so unhappy about not being able to access any schooling because she did not have a device. But that is really the extreme. But the fact is that lots of children are without devices and without access to internet. That's, the, that's one level. The second level is of those people who, are, who do have some access, but perhaps live in very tight, you know, can you imagine in a one room, three children, trying to access Zoom classes, almost next to impossible for them to concentrate, to be able to listen in. Also, spending hours, um, and the devices, we're not talking about computers, we're talking about little, little Android phones. What does it mean for them to be concentrating and sitting on, on these machines, for these little, little phones for hours together, and trying to understand, in any level of education, as it is the quality of education in India was something that was, you know, there was enrollment, but the quality was something that we've always been concerned about. Now with this kind of transmission, what is going to happen to their learning is up for question. Then of course, there are those in the upper, upper classes where there are, there are people, children who are sitting with devices, who have devices, but it's creating a lot of other kinds of ancillary mental health and other issues with families being all together, parents having to stay at home to monitor. You know, we are talking about on them spending hours online and yet ensuring that they are safe online. Online safety, as we know, is a huge issue now. So, so there are multiple levels and multiple layers of issues. The final thing that I want to tell you, Sachit, is schooling and going to school is not just about learning and education. Going to school is about having friends. It's about learning to deal with your peers. It's about being able to talk to other people other than your parents. It's about friendships. It's about um, an access to childhood, adolescence. You know, all of those, I mean, it's a whole, a school space is a wholesome space. It's not just classroom teaching. Now, children have been uh, without this for months together. You can imagine what kind of impact it must be having on them. And actually, you've, uh, you've uh, worked with, with children for the uh, greater part of your, your professional life and, and really understand uh, these challenges around child development very well. But how how do families think through this? I mean, are you are you suggesting that schools resume and that children be sent back to schools? And would that put, you know, especially in um, India where there are multi generational families? Uh, I believe the concern is is that kids will bring home infections 
uh, to their elderly grandparents or, or you know, take infections to, to their teachers. Um, what, what would you do if, if, if you could, could make so, policy decisions around this? What would your recommendations so be? I'm going to take a step back and I wanted to take you back to the mass migration that you saw in India, right? Um, so a lot of the children have gone back to their villages. They were living in nuclear families when they were in the city. Now they are back in the villages trying to uh, adjust to a new life. We actually do not have a head count of how many children are now there in a new setting and whether the existing resources, whether it is schooling, whether it is young and married centers that give them the midday, you know, those uh, meals that for the early childhood care and development. We have no idea. We have no idea of what these numbers look like now at the moment. We do know that in 2008, 9.17 crore children were actually getting uh, midday meals. The government has recognized that, uh, it, that there needs to be continuation and therefore has put in an, an extra 11.35 crore rupees into, into ensuring midday meals continue. But we don't have the number. I don't know how many children are there and how, what are the facilities there. Once you look at this and then you, then you have to ask the same question that you asked me just a little while ago about what is it going to mean in terms of their mental health, their physical health, um, whether schools should open. COVID is not going to go away for a very, very long time as I see it. Is it going to be schools interrupted for these children, then, then remember that all those children who do not have access to internet or phones or devices will all drop out. We already have news reports that children are dropping out and are, be, are going into labor. These are children who, who would barely been pushed into the education system are now being pushed out again. And once there is a break of a year or, or, a, or so, it's going to be very difficult to bring them back into the system. So we will need to find ways to, yes, given that it, there, is, there is fear of infections and all of that, we will have to find ways to find, find a way to get them to do safe schooling. And that's what we think we, we are all, prop, I mean, all of us are saying. How do we um, ensure the schools are safe? Are sanitized? Can we have protocols protocols put in place in terms of safety measures? Um, there was an interesting uh, article that I read uh, two days ago, in which um, in a village school, um, they you know village schools have the teachers have started taking the initiative, which is amazing. India is amazing sometimes. You know you don't really when we look up and say what is the government doing, and then we look around and see, look at these people, the teachers, the, the Anganwari workers and the Asha workers, what they are doing and then they give you so much hope. So these teachers have taken their children out into the field, into the open field and are teaching them with, um, with a handheld, you know, those mics so that children can they can still continue with some level of schooling in these small, small schools. There's a picture of a teacher who has painted little blackboards along the wall of, uh, of the school. And each child is facing that small little blackboard, which is like just a painted black painted wall. And he is walking around teaching. 
so that they can be in social distancing. So whether we, we, we offer solutions or not, teachers themselves are offering those solutions and we start, need to start looking at them. Don't you think so, Satyajit? No, it's quite quite incredible. What is striking to me in, in some of these uh, solutions that that you you mentioned is is the human element, right? Where yes, we understand that technology can scale, but the the realities and sort of the institutional voids that are pre present in in resource constrained settings like our villages uh, makes it imperative that we harness. Uh, you know the human energy it's sort of extremely striking that this example the visual of these blackboards being painted on a wall you know what a simple elegant solution which you know doesn't require an app and a device and and yet um uh, also supports that that human interaction uh, between between children and you know the, the challenge of course is to to be able to give these kinds of um ideas and initiatives um, a regional or a national platform so that that can they can be be expanded um, you know in, in healthcare we often see and including in covid you know so so many of, of the solutions uh, that were really needed in in places like india um, were were not necessarily uh, technologically sophisticated but but they were just not uh, you know the sort of um, headline-grabbing interventions like masking and hand washing, for example. And and I feel I hear from you that 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 you know education may also have simpler solutions like sitting in a field. Um, India has uh, one of the largest populations of malnourished children in the world, and and um, deeply integrated with the school system in India um, is um, the idea of the the midday meal. Uh, it's a concept that, uh, you know, urban India is not necessarily directly very familiar with, uh, nor, nor is middle class India and certainly a foreign um, audience um, uh, cannot, cannot relate to, to going to school uh, primarily for the purpose of also having access to food. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the midday meals? And as, as you talk about the migrants, a question I had as well, if the child was getting a midday meal in the city, uh, does she then uh, get the same meal uh, back back when she goes to a village? How does that work? What are you seeing on the ground in Ashi? Midday meal is very much an urban phenomenon too, as much as it is a rural phenomenon. And interestingly, you know, when there was a lockdown, there were some schools in Delhi that the schools were shut, but they were distributing food because they realized that, the, that there might be so many children without food during lockdown. So the, they would open up the school only for that one or two hours so that they could give out dry rations or give them food. Food, midday meal has increased school enrollment and we know that. It, it is because there was, we, India recognized that children did not come to school that because they had no food and they were hungry. And midday filled that midday meal filled that gap, and it's 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 an amazing program. And um, once we got the order of the hot in the middle, there was a little bit of a um, of a question of what kind of food. But then you know you remember there was uh, it was decided that hot meals would be provided. So that is the one hot meal that every child is guaranteed if they go to school. And like I said, 9.17 or 91 million children were eating that meal. Now we do not know, like 
if these children were in the cities getting access to meals and even if they if their parents were uh, earning they may not have been that needy as uh, for that meal now that they are back in that village without now that their parents are without work what is the absorption capacity of of the villages where they have gone back to um, as i said we do not know and so that is why supreme court took suomo to cognizance of this and and said that all children have to be provided midday meals wherever they are so now what that system will have to be worked out whether these children will now go back and register into these schools in the villages some of them are of course coming back again but many of them will not come back for some time until it is until the parents decide it is safe and they've given up their homes in the city so coming back is not not going to be an easy solution now so what does it mean in terms of um registering in terms of so in if you look at our um, nhrc advisories some of them are actually addressing these issues of that there should be there should be no requirement for identification for registration into midday meal schemes or anganwadi schemes or any other supplementary food nutrition schemes for children they should be just taken for where they are at that moment and provided that service that's what one of the what of one of our recommendations are um and it it is a recommendation that we made as a as a child rights coalition in a advisory that uh, about 400 of us went put together and circulated and sent even sent to the government and this is also part of the advisory that the nhrc is giving to the government is that um is is that an implementable uh, solution who who pays for these midday meals does it come from the state exchequer or does it the does come government... from the state exchequer it does because education is a is a is is a state subject but it is also on the concurrent list so it is state as well as as the center and the center has um, uh, announced an extra as i said 11.535 crore um as a package for giving midday meals but by now by now what should have been done in these months is a very rapid assessment of how many children and where are they without that how do you plan anything and this planning has to be done at the ground level upwards it cannot be done by the central government it has to be done where it is with the panchayats the panchayats have to be empowered and given the the go ahead to actually do these assessments do the surveys provide the meals etc and they have to be given the resources to do it you no know, it's it's quite quite striking that when when we look at uh, these um, images of 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 migrant workers uh, leaving the cities and you know now some of them them coming back um as well that uh, in tour also these tens of millions of children as you are pointing out that are displaced and and that displacement is resulting not only in interruption of their education uh but um heightening heightening food food insecurity is is this problem of food insecurity how does it manifest in 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 the adults uh, the the children seem to be dependent on the midday meals but do uh, do do low income families in india uh, not have access to uh, ration cards um is is that sufficient yes yes and and there we don't have a portability of ration cards you must know 
many do not have ration cards. But those who do, if there is no portability. So if they've moved from Maharashtra back to Jharkhand, there is no portability of that ration card that they have from Maharashtra to Jharkhand, right? Yeah. And actually, I believe, I believe some states do allow portability, right? Like Maharashtra some, and Gujarat, for example, have, have some, some portability. Some do, some yeah. don't. But, but yeah. what, what, I, what we need to do is portability across the country. Going back to hunger and, you know, it's, it's interesting that poor people are saying that, you know, we will not die of COVID or Corona, but we will die of hunger because there is no work. There's absolutely no work. Can you help me understand what both the midday meal and the ration card entails children and family to? What does a midday meal look like? What is it that these kids are so dependent on going to school for? What is on their plate? Uh, it depends it's on, on where they're located and how innovative the principle is. So I have been to schools in West Bengal where with the same amount of money, um, each child was on a, on a given day would be given a fish curry or an egg curry or, or you know, um, or sometimes even um, a, a chicken dish um, with the same amount of money. But there are also pl where places where I've been where they probably just, where I've seen only khichri being given. I've traveled into the, in South India, they will be given the South Indian food. But that, that really is the best part of the midday meal. If there is no leakage, and, and I cannot promise you that, if there is no leakage, I have seen that heads or headmasters or head teachers of schools who really are concerned have been able to provide a really good meal for, their, for the students. It gives the opportunity to also make it culture specific. Isn't it incredible when, when uh, the public delivery systems in India work that they are able to deliver services at a scale that uh, the, the, the world is completely un unfamiliar with? It's mind-boggling, yes, yes, right? Yes, that yes. 90 it's million hot meals would be served to children um, every day, uh, you know, by... Yes, and then uh, of course there are organizations like Akshay Patra, which cooks me hot meals and provides them, to, sends them to schools. And actually we've, we've talked um, a lot about children and, and their meals. Um, and, you know, you, you brought up concern for, for ration cards. What do workers get or what do families get? Um, what are they entitled to through the public distribution center? And, and when migrants receive this and, and they're on the move, um, you know, they don't get meals, the children get meals. So the, the migrants, I'm uh, assuming, get, get food grains. Um, can you food. say something uh, about, uh, you know, then what? Like, is how, how do you get access to fuel and where are you going to cook the food um, if, um, uh, if you have no jobs and, and you're on the streets? You know, a lot of our migrant workers live in, in temporary shelters. Can you help us understand typically where these meals are, um, are, are cooked? For a, um, for a very long time, till very recently, you know, there was this, huge surge of um, efforts made by civil society, just not civil, ordinary citizens who were actually going out and giving food to people. And that's how, and it was just not the migrants. In the lockdown, there was food being distributed across cities by concerned citizens, civil society organizations, 
really it was amazing actually how how the society how is the country just stepped in where the government had failed they just stepped in people were carrying food in their cars and going out and giving it out to people people were carrying water and giving it out to people there were you know those roadside dhabas they were they had become feeding centers for uh, migrants and other laborers there was an upsurge of action in the absence of any systematic support from the state frankly but now as things are quietening now that we're 6 months in into the pandemic and uh, you know folks seem to be returning to uh some kind of normalcy where where permitted you know the roads are busier transport is grudgingly uh opening up um are things looking better are migrants uh, coming back what 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 does it look like on the streets to you in delhi well it's it's you know it must have seen the visuals of migrants being welcomed into punjab with garlands this country survives on interstate migration some states provide them and some states receive them but it is also true um that migrants are coming into delhi and i'm going to give you an anecdote delhi is now getting its migrants back a, a large number of them have always been on the in the construction industry there are hubs in delhi where you will find the labor that sits down and waits for contractors to come and pick them up and take them for work now you see them sitting there for hours and days because there is no money people are on salary cuts 30% 50% these are anecdotal things that you watch and see but i also know that there are a lot of people who used to have housemates for example they don't they can't afford it anymore then there is the fear of having housemates in so domestic labor people who worked in other people's houses are now sitting at home because their employers will not take them in because they are afraid of infection but they are also not being paid for sitting at home some of them may have been paid in the first few months but they are no longer being paid anymore people in the small hotel industries the the dhabas and the eateries very few of them are opening up but the ones that employed people are no longer open so these all these people who were cooks and waiters are without work none of them have that much of savings that they can carry on for a, for months together without work so how are we going to they are going to see a new level of food crisis where there was none people those are, these are not people who were hungry there were there are people who are malnutrition and hungry and in india they have been and i know that they were there and they we we've always planned and worked for them we now need to plan for this new level of hunger new level of people who are who've never been hungry before who are now suddenly turned poor and indigent nakshi you're talking about uh, potentially uh, tens to even in hundreds of millions of people that uh, will have decreased uh, caloric intake and uh, um as as a clinician i'm i'm concerned that these these were not high ca- calorie diets to uh to begin with you, you know few less calories than than a normal diet a few hundred calories here and there uh, exactly. especially if you're not having adequate uh, adequate food to begin with uh, can have detrimental effects on on um, 
uh, your physical and, and, and mental well-being. Understand that all this crisis is pushing people into different kinds of other crises. We know that the women in the informal sector were, they were in such a tenuous situation. Now they are worse. We are seeing higher levels of violence in the homes, in the domestic setup. We are also seeing higher levels of trafficking because children and women are going to be trafficked when there is to that level of poverty. Every other form of exploitation kicks in. And we are already seeing that. It is not true of only India. Um, as the UNFPA chief has said, it's a shadow pandemic across the world. And actually, that, that, that is, um, that's, that's very well true. Sort of in, in, in medicine, the concern is, of course, that there will be um, these long impacts on both morbidity and mortality, not directly related to the SARS-CoV-2 infection, but um, because of these indirect um, impacts of the pandemic on, you know, interruption uh, to access to healthcare, you're either just not going to the hospital because you're afraid to go or, or you simply can't because, you know, you've now lost, lost your income and lost your health insurance in, in you know, countries that, that have organized um, uh, insurance schemes. I think you raise uh, really uh, important but, but alarming facets of uh, the pandemic's impact on a society like India's where uh, the, the not so downstream but almost direct impact on, on children and on food security um, are, uh, reach colossal proportion. You're talking about tens to then hundreds of millions of people pushed into uh, alarming levels of food insecurity uh, because of the lack of access to meager wages that they were living on. What, what is the solution? If, if you were given a magic wand and if you could sort of change policy, what can be done at this stage now in months after the world's largest national lockdown? We did mismanage it, did we not? The lockdown was in four hours. There was no preparation at all. And now um, we are seeing that the service industry is not functioning. MSMEs are under stress. So we are part of the same global economic uh, meltdown that's everywhere else. It's true. But India has one amazing thing that we, could we can use, and that is build up from the bottom up again. Instead of planning top up, we need to do go from bottom up. Uh, we need to work with panchayats. We need to work with communities for ensuring we have to build the safety nets within the communities. We have to build, work the, you know, the village level child protection committees. We have to empower our ASHA workers and our ANMs. We still pay them such low salaries and we treat them so badly. And they are the ones on whom this whole recovery phase is standing, uh, Sachit. You know, it's a school teacher, the ASHA worker, the ancillary AM worker, the ancillary nurse health worker, the Anganwari worker who runs the Balwaris, you know, the, the childcare centers. The entire recovery is, is on their shoulders. And yet we are they are there are many who haven't been paid. They are, they are not equipped with even the basic PPEs many a times. They are not given the equipment that they need. 
we have always had such low investment in health and you know that the healthcare system has been so fragile because of the increasing privatization of health in this country and now we've it is back to the uh, the government health system that we are looking to, to for for succor because the the private healthcare system cannot will not even absorb us how many of us can even afford it if i cannot afford it if today i were to be sick it, it uh, if i need a, a ventilator it's like a lakh a day 14 days 14 lakhs i don't have that kind of money how many people have that kind of money how many people have that kind of insurance so the overload is on the government healthcare system so really i think now all of us need to go back into empowering and strengthening the the government healthcare system and and it's a long haul but this is the time to take a call and say right to health is a fundamental right on the one hand it's about of course recognizing who we what we what are the systems that we need to strengthen now take this as a wake up call take this moment as a wake up call and invest where we need to most into education systems into teacher salaries into health into these anm and these asha workers who are, who on whose shoulder the recovery phase for covid and will be for the next few years you know arundhati roy makes an interesting observation in the article that she wrote uh, several months uh, ago where she she talks about the pandemic as a portal and says uh, you know and asks whether we as a society will will come out of it with our baggage or leave it behind sort of to to a new beginning and as as i listen to you it strikes me that what you're calling for um is uh, uh with you and 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 you know several a serious examination about um our healthcare delivery systems but especially the systems that deliver these vital services of health of education of food uh to the hundreds of millions of 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 indians that are heavily dependent on these that are that are still dependent on public services just to survive not even to to flourish what well, the pandemic has brought to light again at a time when indian society has to come together to rethink um how it will rebuild or build back better Uh, reimagine what these frontline delivery services look like you know supporting um, essential workers uh, and and in this case uh, you know anganwadi workers and school teachers better you've um, you know expressed um, a serious concern about sort of role of uh, civil society um, not not being at the uh, drafting table um, so as to speak in in uh, imagining what needs to be done uh, for india now um but but in the short uh, you know past couple of decades uh, we have seen in in our uh, careers um several um, advances in in fundamental rights in india you know the right to um, education uh, the the and more recently the right to food and and of course the right to privacy and each of these uh, right to information a right to information um and and civil society played a very large role in in uh, fighting for and then you know uh, getting these a realization of of these rights you know implementation of course is is um, you know always remains a challenge but but the big battle of sort of having these rights acknowledged um 
uh, came came from from society and and fleeting you mentioned you know maybe this is a moment where we have a discussion about the right right to health can can you help us understand how the right to food came about how is it that uh, you know india feeds uh, tens of millions of children every day and continues to give out uh, these um, ration cards that um, hundreds of millions of families are dependent upon what what was the right to food uh, movement right like so the, the the right to food movement continues and it's one of the strongest movements um even now as as we speak it they monitor the the, the food distribution they monitor anganwadis they monitor midday meals and they would and this is what they this this is what they did when the right to food petition was in the supreme court of india the people's union for civil liberties who filed the case again for on right to food in the in the supreme court of india um, this went on for several years but what was interesting was that there was all there were these two right to food commissioners who were appointed who with a team of people would actually monitor what was the implementation of the order and would come back and report to the to the court and the court would give an order accordingly that was such an important part of the engagement of the the court and and what was actually happening on the ground along with what was happening with with the executive which was implementing it so it was almost like a tripartite arrangement the fact that we have right to work is because of the huge engagement of the civil society it's not without that that we that we could have got it and today um if there is any anything that might just save the poor in this country will actually be the this the, the work that the narega can give them where they are if there is that's the only glimmer of hope that we have that they will enable them to do some work wherever they are and they will get some money and they will be able to feed their family so all of these are engagements that happened because of civil society involvement the the fact that today um, there are village level child protection committees in our country is because of the engagement of of civil society and the and the formulation of the integrated child protection scheme so you we have over the last two decades we have been real the civil society has played a very important role in informing government and it is not just the upa government the one that was preceding the current one but the the early, the version of this government that we have in the earlier in the in the early 2000s which is the nda government that too was it was a time when there was a huge amount of engagement with the government and and the role of civil society was acknowledged and it was acknowledged with with appreciation in in the role that they played that doesn't mean civil society must not be monitored of course they must be but they must they they civil society's role is not to replace the government it is to inform to sometimes disagree sometimes create possibilities for the government create models which the government can upscale in actually going forward given the vastness of the challenges that lie before us you know you have um more unemployment uh, and and this is not particular to india but but certainly around the world 
than before because of uh, interruption um, in the economy that the pandemic has foisted upon everyone. Uh, but in India, then the particular concerns around food insecurity and interruption of uh, childhood education with a lack of um, alternatives to, to continue education because of infrastructural challenges. If there were, if there were three policy recommendations uh, you could make to the government, what would those be? I would like to talk, talk of three sectoral areas that I think we need to look at. They may require one policy or may require multiple, but these are the three sectors that need immediate attention as far as I'm concerned, I think in my opinion, if we want to recover. One is how do we find a way to get all the people back to work? Without employment, families are going to fall into in, going to become more and more indigent. So that means that we have to get the uh, small scale industries and other work workspaces that you know what that the employment generation uh, sector going and they need to be supported and they need to be uh, made safe. Um, the second sector would be the education and the childcare sector, which is education and Anganwadi's together, uh, because which would mean preschool and um, zero to five and five upwards. If we have to find a way to ensure that the children are being taken to these these Anganwadi centers, this would that would mean that women can go to work and children are in school. That means women can go to work because it's the hardest for women, and most of whom are in the informal sector anyway. Um, it also would mean that children can continue with their education because otherwise, if there is a break in education now, many children will drop out of school and there'll be a huge setback in education of this country. So we need to make a find a way to get these. The, the education system going in a safe way. Um, and the final one is the health sector definitely needs much more attention than it ever did. And clearly privatization of health is not the answer. It is the health sector which must be seen as the government, government health system which needs to be supported and uh, given much better support, infrastructure, money, all of that, because that's where majority of the poor and the even and now the new poor will have to be dependent on. Inakshi Ganguly, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sachit, for giving me this opportunity. It was wonderful. But it's despondent times and I wish I could be a little bit more optimistic than I was. The COVID pandemic uh, seems to, irrespective of where we are in the world, have almost the same devastating consequences on their populations and, and a call for uh, the, the very basic uh, services that we all hope would be available in a just society, the ability of uh, people to get back to work, the ability for children to continue to go to school and have food in their stomachs and for people to have um, access uh, to healthy lives. Um, and actually, thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at mithalsouthasiainstitute.harvard.edu slash India in Focus podcast. 
Until next time.